0: Hi, I'm Lindsay Ford, the Director for Political Security Affairs here at the Asia Society Policy Institute, and this is Asia Inside Out, where we get some inside perspective about what's happening in Asia from some outside the bellway experts. This past month, like many others over the past year, felt like a roller coaster ride. At the top of the news cycle all month, no surprise North Korea, North Korea, North Korea. With what seems to be a growing drumbeat within the Trump administration and in the news about the prospect of a preemptive strike on North Korea and suggestions that we are, quote, running out of time for diplomacy to work, the question on everyone's mind is, what's next? But we actually want to go in the opposite direction on today's episode. As everyone's debating the way ahead, we thought it would be useful to take a step back and reflect on an important part of this story, which is the origins. So on this episode, we're going to talk a bit about the Kim dynasty, how it started and developed, and what that means for the challenge that we face today in North Korea. A lot of people talk about the Kim family. They like to paint Kim Jong-un as a madman. Uh, or the butt of our jokes, talk about the crazy myths and the cult of personality surrounding the family. But as you'll see on today's episode, there's more than meets the eye in the Kim family backstory. And understanding how the family's grip on power developed can help us understand a lot about the North Korea we face today. So to start, I reached out to Rob York, currently a PhD researcher at the University of Hawaii and the former editor of NK News. So Rob, I want to talk for a second about the beginning of the North Korean regime and how Kim Il-sung really transformed at the beginning from a Revolutionary War hero into embracing more of a role as leader of the country and how you saw the idea of a cult of personality start to emerge around him and and what that really looked like in the early years.
1: That was very much a gradual process. And Kim Il-sung was, in the early days, very much a devoted servant of the USSR and Stalin in particular, and not the first choice of the Soviet leadership, or even really himself. He did not desire to lead the country at the beginning. The original first choice amongst the Soviets was Choman Shik, who was a domestic Uh, leader of the independence movement against the the Japanese colonizers in Korea. Not a natural choice for him. He was a military man and had expected to continue in that role for some time thereafter. And also having been in Manchuria for as long as he was, he spoke Korean rather poorly. He actually had to be coached considerably in the in advance of the speech making that he would give uh, to the to the North Korean population.
0: So at the beginning, it sounds like Kim Il-sung really didn't actually have any intention of being the leader of the North Korean regime. And yet the mythology that built up around him says something very different. And, and there was clearly a shift over time. Can you talk a bit about how that happened?
1: The real flowering of the personality cult into what we essentially see today was a process that was finalized in the late 1960s, when the last of the independent factions within the country, this group was known as the Kopsan faction, was also done away with. And they suddenly disappeared, essentially from state media and from the public. And from that point on, Kim Il-sung's party was organized around his person and the ability Objectives, they said, of the party from that point on was to bring all thoughts and all ideas in accordance with the great leader, the respected comrade Kim Il-sung. And from that point on, yes, he has maintained that position, he and his descendants, the period of time at the end of the late 1960s and early 1970s also coincided with the Cultural Revolution in China. So to some extent, this was also a response to the growth of the personality cult in China.
0: Moving, moving past Kim Il-sung, let's, let's talk for a second uh, about, about his son and, and Kim Jong-un's father, um, Kim Jong-il. I mean, at what point um, did it become clear that in terms of North Korea's leadership, it was going to be passed down through the family versus perhaps to somebody else within the elite, you know, who would sort of be the new leader of the country.
1: It was made public in 1980. That's when he was declared that he would be the successor. But we believe that he was actually chosen to be the successor to his father by the late 1960s. At that point, Kim Jong-il was not an especially accomplished party figure, but in that time period he took over the propaganda and agitation department and proved to be an especially talented promoter of his father's abilities and his legend. So that corresponds with the time period when you really see Kim Il-sung's personality called really explode beyond all previous boundaries and Kim Jong-il was instrumental in that he successfully outmaneuvered the children that his the other children that his father had had oftentimes with different women but it was during that period of time that Kim Jong-il began to essentially take over okay become the new leader and also begin to start manipulating the country. And by the mid-1970s, Bruce Cummings has noted that there were references to the so-called party center or the heart of the party that were being used. And towards the end of that decade, by the end of the 1970s, it became increasingly clear in state media that the heart of the party, the party center, was actually a person. And by the end of that decade, it was revealed that that person was Kim Jong-il.
0: Kim Jong-il essentially um, proved his worth as a very successful myth spinner, um, which probably helped endear him somewhat to his father. Um, and he then managed to extend that myth to himself. So uh, what types of things in that period when, when Kim Jong Il took over um, in the, what was it, propaganda and agitation uh, department? Yes. <laughs> That's a great name. Uh, what, what types of things did you see happen when he took over that actually sort of like expanded and built on the myth that surrounded his father that hadn't been there before?
1: Propaganda and agitation has a, has a stigma attached to it in our society and others in the West, but not so much over there. Okay. Propaganda and agitation are generally considered uh, positive things, especially if in you're in one of those revolutionary movements in Asia. Now, some of the keys that to what we saw in this time period, okay, there's the statue, the giant statue of Kim Il-sung in the in the middle of Pyongyang, and state media's focus changed a great deal. There was a time when the state media, particularly the Nodong Shinmun or the workers' newspaper, would report on news in a a relatively straightforward fashion, certainly slanted. But what happened during this time period is that then you see – you start to see – Front page editorials pretty much, pretty much consistently focusing on the character of the leader himself, and there are paragraphs upon paragraphs extolling the virtues of the great leader who, through his <clears throat> through through his beneficence, has saved the country from Japanese uh, imperialism. By this time period, he's claiming that he saved the country from the uh, Japanese colonialists and not the Soviets. He's claiming that he Uh, defended the country and won it from the American aggression during the Korean War. There's a number of claims along those lines and just an increasing amount of focus on the monolithic character of the regime at this time period. So
0: let's turn for a second to the third generation of leadership in North Korea and the selection of Kim Jong-un. I think in a lot of ways it was a surprise for many people Uh, He was young. He was untested. It was not necessarily the assumed choice of who would come after Kim Jong-il. Can you talk for a minute about how this came about and how the decision was made for Kim Jong-un to be the next leader of North Korea?
1: Well, going through the Kim bloodline, <clears throat> Kim Jong Il had three sons. There were there was Kim Jong Nam, Kim Jong Chol, and Kim Jong Un. Kim Jong Nam originally had a position in the party and was probably being groomed for a high-profile role, but he fell out of favor some years ago for attempting to break into was it your disney japan on a, on a on a forged passport and at that point he fell out of favor the middle child was kim jong chul and he according to those who know him has had a party role but was downsized, was was marginalized within party ranks and given a very minor role, not really considered for the leadership position because supposedly he had feminine characteristics. Now, the, <clears throat> the sushi chef that Kim Jong-il employed towards the end of the late 1980s and early 1990s actually said that he was essentially a little girl. So, as a result of that, Kim Jong-il did not favor him from the beginning. Now, Kim Jong-un was being discussed as a likely leader, a likely candidate for a leadership position in the middle of the last decade at least, and was, and possibly even before that. There are those who have traced the uh, beginning of the veneration of Kim Jong-il's wife— as a kind of mother figure and as an object of a bit of a personality cult herself towards the beginning of the last decade. And that might have been, in a sense, paving the way for Kim Jong-un to be elevated because Kim Jong-il also elevated the status of his own mother, Kim Jong-suk, when he was about to take the reins, was rising through the party ranks himself. So... Uh, Kim Jong-un first emerged uh, toward, I believe is around 2010. Uh, that's when he first appeared in public and they began preparing him.
0: So Kim Jong-un's appointment as the new North Korean leader was a bit of a surprise and also a black box in terms of what was going to come next. And while some people might have thought initially that he could be a reformer, given his childhood outside of North Korea, what we've actually seen is that, especially in terms of the security situation, he's been even more hardline than people expected. There's been a rapid escalation of North Korea's ballistic missile and nuclear programs over the last couple of years, increased executions at home in particularly dramatic fashion. And far from being the more open-minded reformer that one might have hoped, today tensions on the peninsula are higher than they've been in years. And the United States, as well as other countries, is now really struggling to understand the regime and figure out how to move forward. So to help us understand a little bit more about Kim Jong-un and the current North Korean regime, I reached out to Jean Lee, global fellow at the Wilson Center and the former Pyongyang bureau chief for the Associated Press, who spent time on the ground to get her perspective on the situation. So Jean, as the debate about US policy options in North Korea has ramped up over the past several months, one idea that you've seen tossed into the mix is the notion of promoting regime change. And one way people have talked about that you could potentially do this is the idea that you could really foment elite unrest inside North Korea and sort of compel the North Korean elite to think about removing Kim Jong-un from power and putting somebody else in in his place. Can you talk about that for a second? I mean, how realistic is it to um, think that the North Korean elite could be convinced to really move against the Kim family?
2: For one, I think we need to remember that so much of Kim Jong-un's legitimacy to rule is based on um, his lineage. And this right in North Korea for the Kims to rule has been built into society, not only society but the political system, their constitution, their government. Every aspect of their daily life is built around the idea that the only people who are entitled to rule in North Korea are the Kims, so much a part of their identity. And the leader, the the first president of North Korea did this very deliberately, uh, building this cult of personality. It it didn't start out that way, but he saw it as the one way that he could kind of keep his country together was to build this kind of cult of personality, the power of his his right to rule. And he handed that down to his son. And of course, we, we know that he handed that down to his son It's extremely difficult to imagine in any other society or in any other country a third generation succession. Um, And yet because they've built this very singular type of legacy or or legitimacy of rule, uh, North Korea is really the only place that has this type of hereditary succession, especially in the communist rule. Uh, We really have to look at it as its own kind of entity. The other thing I need to, I usually remind people is that Koreans are extremely conformist. It is part of Korean culture and very Confucian in certain ways, very Neo-Confucian in in the Korean context. Koreans, whether they're South Korean or North Korean, like to try to fit in as much as possible.
0: Jean, so you have an elite that in spite of some defections really has an incentive to remain loyal to Kim Jong-un. But the flip side of that would be that Kim Jong-un needs to deliver the goods, literally the lifestyle, the consumer goods that North Korean elites are expecting. And this seems to be a part of why he has really allowed North Korean black markets to flourish, has not cracked down on them at all. And, you know, probably part of the point of enhanced U.S. sanctions as well, making life much less happy for North Korean elites and then, by extension, Kim Jong-un, and hopefully trying to reduce access to the external goods that they've really come to expect in order to maintain their lifestyles.
2: So they, I think the North Koreans know, the people in power know that they've got to make some changes. They've got to open up the economy. It's very clear that Kim Jong-il felt that way, that when he, he knew his the end of his life was approaching, he tried to push through some changes and introduce different forms of eco, um, of building the economy. That said, the North Koreans have seen the world change around them. They have seen what happened to the Soviet Union. They've seen what's happened to China. And they've seen how these these their systems have pretty much fallen apart when they've gone too far in the direction of a market economy. And so what they don't want is for their entire system and their way of life and their political structure to collapse.
0: There's a balance then between the need to modernize the economy eventually and open to the outside world, and also the imperative to maintain power. And to some extent, it seems that Kim Jong-un has addressed this problem by allowing the black market systems to flourish, and in essence, vastly increasing trade with the outside world, but doing it through illicit off-the-book mechanisms that don't require the accompanying political and security concessions you would need in order to engage with the international economy in a more legitimate way. So it kind of gives you the picture of a young ruler who's very much focused on the need to secure his legacy and solidify his power base. And when you look at the activities of the first few years of his leadership, appeasing elites by allowing black markets to expand, eliminating rivals, pushing aggressively to secure a nuclear deterrent, that's what it all boils down to, solidifying power and support internally while simultaneously staving off external threats. That's a pretty tall order for a young, untested leader. You know,
2: we have to remember that he was a really
0: young man when
2: he was put into this position, and that that the world and the North Koreans didn't know who he was. So he had very little time to prepare and very little time to build. Uh, a history of legitimacy, right? So um, that the reason why that is such a factor is because it just means he's going to need that much more time and make that much more effort to solidify his power base. And we're still seeing that happen right now. And that's if that's what he has to focus on, if that's what he's preoccupied by, that means that he's not going to be turning enough attention toward, perhaps, say, building the economy or doing things for the the future of the country Because he's focused so much right now on making sure that his power base is stable and making sure that he's built up his legacy.
0: So, you know, while some people look at the news and they see saber rattling and we've heard folks, including um, Nikki Haley, recently suggest that Kim Jong-un is, quote, begging for war. Perhaps the reality is actually the opposite. And what Kim is actually doing is trying to figure out a way to maneuver a larger, much more powerful opponent back to the negotiating table on terms that he believes are favorable.
2: One thing we I heard quite a bit when I was in Pyongyang was um, that they that they call the Korean the what we call Armistice Day or July 27th, which is the day that the uh, the two the foes in the Korean War signed an armistice and ceasefire. So in North Korea they call that Victory Day. And one of the things I would ask the North Koreans is why do you call it Victory Day? Because a ceasefire isn't exactly a victory, right? I mean, it's a truce. And the response was, we got the the Americans, the superpower, we're a tiny country, and we got this big superpower to come to a truce. And as far as we're concerned, that's a victory.
0: So here we are, over 60 years post-armistice, and the Kim family still surprising people. What should we take away from today's discussion about the family backstory? I would suggest there are a few things we ought to ponder more seriously. First, this is a family that has proven itself willing to pursue any means possible to stay in power. They've built an entire mythology and restructured their whole society in pursuit of that goal. We know that, but we need to remember that right now the main thing Kim Jong-un believes is helping protect his legacy is nuclear weapons. So... We need to think long and hard about whether denuclearization, at least in any kind of a near term, is still an achievable goal. And if it's not, then we need to start getting serious about what a strategy to contain and deter North Korea could really look like. Second, when we're making assumptions about what comes next and how North Korea is likely to respond to any of our actions, we need to have a liberal dose of humility about what we don't know. We have been repeatedly surprised by North Korea over the years. It has frequently taken actions we didn't think were likely or possible, and often disproved our expectations. So when we're thinking and talking about choices that could potentially spark a massive conflict, we need to remember how limited our ability to predict North Korean actions really is, and that ought to give us pause. And finally, if we believe that Kim Jong-un is rational, and every piece of history suggests that while we may not like this regime, there is a clear rationality and logic behind their actions, then we have to believe that at the end of the day, North Korea is not fundamentally different from problems we faced in the past and therefore doesn't require a fundamentally different toolkit. Our traditional tools, diplomacy, deterrence, can work here, and we ought not tell ourselves there's nothing left but war because these guys are just so crazy. It has been a long half-century since the armistice, And I think we probably have a lot of runway left to go. With that, I'm Lindsay Ford, and this has been Asia Inside Out.